Turn with me tonight in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. Matthew 12, 18 through 21. I don't, I don't have a title for this sermon, for this message. So I'm just going to tell you the purpose of where I want to take you. I want the church to come to a place through this word tonight that we see the Jesus Christ, that we see Messiah, our Lord and Savior, as God seen him. I want us to see our Savior, our high priest, as God the Father seen him. Because I believe that if the church ever gets to the place where they see Christ, the Son of God, like the Father God seen him, then everything changes and will never be the same. And the writer here, Matthew, he goes all the way back to Matthew, he goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 42 when he pins this. And this is what he says. The King, I'm going to read out New Living, um, New Living Translation. But the King James, the, the NIV, I believe, too, starts off like this. It says, Behold. Behold. Look at my servant, whom I have chosen. He is my beloved, who pleases me. And I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice He'll proclaim truth to the nations. He will not fight, nor shout, nor raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed, nor will he put out the flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice, fairness, to be victorious. In his name, in his great name, will be the hope of all the world. Can you say amen? Now, this is not Matthew speaking here. But this is something that was inspired by the Spirit of God. This was the voice of God that spoke to Isaiah. And Isaiah penned in 42. Matthew's just studying and writing. Matthew, he begins here to speak the heart of God concerning his son. In these verses of scripture I just read to you, in these, these, what is there, one, two, three, in these one, two, three, four verses of scriptures concerning, this is God's heart. This is God's way of expressing his son, Jesus Christ. And what he starts off with, the very first thing that he starts off with, he starts out with, behold, He starts out with look. So God is telling the church here. He is saying, look at my son. Look at the Messiah. Look at your high priest. Look at your mediator. 
Behold means this, to see, to look upon, and to experience. God, right here, right off the bat, God calls attention to all readers. He is calling the attention to men and women, the readers of that time and the readers of this time. He is saying, look upon my son. Look upon the one who has come to show you a better way. The Spirit of God in here is drawing the bride to turn our eyes and to turn our hearts to the Messiah. He is drawing us and he is saying, behold, God says, look upon him and experience his sovereignty. God is telling the church, he is saying that you must turn your eyes from idols. You must turn your idols, your eyes from the world. You must quit beholding the things of the flesh and you must behold the Messiah. If, if your eyes, if our eyes will ever see him. If our eyes can ever behold the Messiah. If our eyes can ever see Jesus in the viewpoint, in the perspective that God's seen him. Our hearts will forever belong to him. Our hearts will forever be sealed and they will forever be burned. But we have to come to the place that where we read this word, we devour this word, and we allow the Spirit to inspire us to see the Messiah, not as a common man, not as a prophet, but Peter. Peter recognized him as the Messiah. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to him. But my Father who is in heaven has showed this to you. He has drawn the church to a place that will see the Messiah the same way that God seen him. The church doesn't reverence Christ like God reverenced Christ. The church doesn't reverence Christ like the disciples reverence Christ. Why? Because we don't take time to behold him. I have to take time to behold my wife. Or I won't see her, I won't know her. She has to take time to look at me and behold me. There is no experience with Christ without beholding Christ. Amen? There is no experience, there is no move of God without beholding Him. There is, without seeing Him. God, He says here, He says, look at my son. That's the first thing He says. If you tell me to look at something, I may ignore you. My parents used to tell me to look, see all the time, and I ignored them all the time. But if God tells you to look, you may want to look. Because he's got something to show you. Look, he says. Look. Isaiah 6, or 9 and 6. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. And Prince of Peace. You know why they don't mean a whole lot to some of you? Because the world has deluded Christ in our hearts and in our minds. And all he is, is just a sermon on Sunday morning. He's not a lifestyle. And that's what, he, that's what God is trying to get the body back to. Why will, the Amer- why will half, why will, why will, why will 75%, 80% of America miss revival when God sits down and pours as a spirit in America? Why? Because they don't know who Christ is. And that's, that's what God's doing right here. He's saying, you got, you, got to, you got to look at him. you got to acknowledge how great he is. you got to stop overlooking him. And you've got, to, you've got to look at him on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Why? He's a wonderful counselor. 
He's a mighty God, an everlasting Father, and a Prince of Peace. Look at, look at what John the Baptist says about him. In John 1 and 15. John testified, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am. For he existed long before me. Now what did Jesus say about John the Baptist? He said, no man has ever been born from a, from a woman that is, any, that is greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist says, no one, he is greater than anyone else. Then John tells them, I baptize with water. But right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry followed me, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. The next day, Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, behold. God says, Behold, behold. Look upon the Messiah. Look upon the Son of God. Look upon your high priest. Don't take your salvation, your freedom for granted because it costs someone their life. And if we do not see the Messiah, then we will not experience the Messiah. All it will be is another sermon. All it will be is another day. All it will be is this normal life. I refuse to live normal. I refuse to allow this church to be normal. I refuse to allow our services to be normal. I refuse to allow us to continue to hear words, hear words, and never see words. If we see the Messiah, we will see the fulfillment of the word. John also says this. He has come from above. Listen to this. This is beautiful. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. If the bride, if the church would behold and would see the bridegroom, the Messiah, everything would change and everything would shift. What caused the shifting? With the disciples in the upper room, they seen the Messiah high and lifted up. They seen the Son of God, they beheld the Son of God, and they believed the Son of God. He's awesome. He's, under, he's undescribable. Listen, listen, listen to what in, in John, in John chapter 1, in the first chapter, in the first chapter, John doesn't even know how to express him. He eight, He gives him eight different names. He so he has beheld the glory of God. He talks about it in First John chapter one. He said, "Man, I write this thing because I've seen it and I've known it. I've beheld His glory, and I write not from what I've heard, but I write out of experience." The woman came to the town. Come see a man that told me everything about myself. John beheld him. He was so overwhelmed, and he begins to pin John chapter one. This is what he says. Verse 1, he calls him the Word. That's not enough. Verse 4, he calls him the life of man. Verse 7, the light of man. Verse 12, the Son of God. Verse 14, the only begotten of the Father. Verse 41, the Messiah. Verse 49, the King of Israel. And in verse 51, the, 51, the Son of God. Eight different names in one chapter in the opening of 22 chapters. 
Why? Because he's seen something. And he knew he was just more than salvation. Behold, look, look upon him. Hey, I don't, I'm not going to read it to you now. But get into Revelations chapter 5 and find out what heaven says about him. When John begins to, he begins to weep because there's no one there to open the seal. And then the angel of the Lord, one of the angels stand up and said, hold on just a second. The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to break the seal and read it. He's awesome. And this is what God says about it. God says, look at him and behold him. You want to, you will not experience him until you behold him. This is what he says. I'm having fun. I have, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been, I haven't had fun the last couple of times I stepped behind this pulpit, but I'm just going to have fun tonight. How's that sound to y'all? All right? Y'all are lucky I got a date with my wife tonight because I may preach all night, but I got a date. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He gets real personal. He moves from us looking at him to now look what I see in him. And what does he refer to him as? He refers to him as my chosen servant. My chosen servant. Let me let you in on something. He didn't come to serve you. He came to serve God. So it's time that the church and the people of God stop living like he's supposed to serve us and us live like we're supposed to serve him. Alright? He's God's chosen servant. God, right here, God says, look at my servant whom I have chosen. God the Father, Almighty God, is endorsing his son as his chosen servant. He endorses him. He says, he's mine. Now listen, God required an acceptable and perfect servant from man, service from man. But man, being a sinful being, could not perform it. So Jesus Christ took upon himself the nature of man and fully performed the whole will of God. He says, I have kept every single one that you entrusted to me. He was, he's my servant. God acknowledged him as my servant. Why, why, did, why did God choose him to be his servant? Why, what was so particular about the Son of God? Why did he choose him? He chose him for three reasons I'm going to bring out. One, obedience. The next, humility. And the next, he was selflessness. He, was, he had selflessness. He did not care about himself. All he cared about was you and me. Listen to this. In Hebrews 10, 4 through 7. For it, is, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That is why when Christ came into the world, this is what he said. He said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then Christ said, look, I have come to do your will. Oh God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. Hebrews 5 and 18. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. He may have been the son of God. But he was more than willing to be the servant of God. 
He didn't. He never took in consideration and said, "I'm the Son of God. I don't have to do this." But even though he was the Son of God, he suffered, and he suffered with obedience. That's why he was chosen. Because he was obedient. It's our obedience to God, not our qualifications. It's not, it's not our qualifications that qualifies us to be his servant. It's not our talents. It's not my gifts. It's not my ability to preach. It's not my ability to speak that qualifies me to be his servant. But it's my obedience that qualifies me to be his servant. He was obedient, he was humble, and he was selflessness. It is our humility and our selflessness that will attract the favor of God. Why did God say, he is my servant? He's my chosen servant. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 gives a pretty good indication why he chose him. Though he was God, he did not think equally with God as something to cling to. You know how many times I've clinged to my last name? Thought it made me somebody? He's the son of God and doesn't even cling to it. Wow. Wow. He's humble. Selflessness. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Christ served his father always with diligence and faithfulness. He's mine. He endorsed him. God endorsed the son. God endorsed the Messiah. He endorsed the work that he would do. He said, hey, he's, no, he's mine. He's mine. He's my chosen servant. Listen, in, in, in John, I believe it was, in, in, somewhere in John, the disciples, in verse 4, in chapter 4, the disciples, they were urging Jesus to eat something. And this is Jesus' reply to them. I have a kind of food you know nothing about. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God, the one who sent me. As a servant of God, he was about one thing, reconciling mankind unto God. He was God's chosen servant. Why? Because he was all about God. If we want to be God's chosen servants, that we must take a picture out, that we must take, we must look upon Christ and we must follow his example. The next thing he says, he says mine again. This is the way that God sees his son. He says, he is my beloved who pleases me. The father is mag- he's magnifying his son. He is my beloved. Son of God. The Messiah. Your Messiah. The high priest. He's my beloved. He magnifies the son here. He speaks of him in the highest regard from his heart. He's my beloved. He speaks. He's the one I love. The one who pleases me. The one who gives me the light. The one who pleases my soul. The father is absolutely in love with the son. Wow. The is absolutely in love with the son. (laughs) He is my beloved. You can't get no higher regard from God. He speaks from his heart about the son and he says he's my beloved who pleases me. 
Listen, if my memory serves me correct, we are privileged only two times in the New Testament to hear the audible voice of God. Everyone's mind's running right now. And we are privileged in those two times that when he speaks, he speaks about his son. He could say anything he wanted to because he's God. But what does he do? He chose to speak about his son. We, we see on one occasion his baptism. In Matthew 3 and 17, it's recorded again in Mark and Luke. A voice from heaven says, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Continually he establishes that he's mine, he's mine, he's mine, who brings me great joy. And then again on the mountain transfiguration in Matthew 17 and 5, again in Mark and again in, um, in Luke. A bright cloud overshadowed them, a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. God's in, he just, he's in love with him. This is the way that the father sees the son. The father knows his value. The father knows his value. And if the church will look upon him and the church will behold him, then the church will come to understanding of his value. And we won't treat him as a visitor. We must set him like a seal upon our heart. As the beloved of our soul. And he must become the pleasure of our time, the pleasure of our thoughts, and the pleasure of our life. God was consumed in the Son. He was consumed with passion for the Son. Should I be? Should I be in love with him just as my Savior or as my Lord? Glory. I must be in love with him as my Lord. The next thing he says, I love this part. I love it all. I will put my spirit upon him. Now when he puts his spirit upon him, that means he's putting his approval upon him. That means that he's endorsing him to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But God says, the Messiah, the Son of God, I will put my spirit upon him. I will put my approval upon him. God appoints him as the anointed one, giving him the name of Christ. There's only one Christ. There's only one anointed one. And he is the Son of God. And he says, I have chosen him to put my spirit upon him. I've anointed him as the king of kings and lord of lords. John 3 and 34 says this, for God has given him his spirit without limits. God says, I will withhold nothing from you, but I will, get, I will, I will fill your physical body. I will fill that body of flesh with my full spirit. I will put my spirit upon him, says the Lord. God was saying, I will baptize him. I will possess the human body of Christ. I will clothe the human body of Christ. And I will cover the human body of Christ with my full spirit. In Colossians 1 and 19, God says this. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Wow. He's, he is, I didn't make a mistake. But I am pleased to live in Christ. Colossians 2 and 9. In Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. 
I will put my spirit upon him. In Hebrews 1 and 3, the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. And when he cleanses from our sins, he set down the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. He is absolutely possessed and baptized, clothed and covered with the spirit of God. God says, I've approved him. I've appointed him. I've anointed him. I've named him as Christ, the anointed one. And he is the Messiah. And I am full of him and pleased to be there. Now there's a shift right here. In the first three phrases, he says, mine. But in the third phrase, when he says, I will put my spirit upon him, there's no, no longer mine, but it goes to he. He will do this, he will do this, he will do this, his name will be this. Because when the spirit comes upon you, and the spirit comes upon him, then he begins to bring fulfillment to the will and the purpose of God in his life. When the Spirit comes upon the church, at that point, it is the purpose of the Spirit of God that has come upon you to begin to fulfill the purpose and the will of God for your life. And we must take the Spirit of God and we must cultivate it, amen? The Spirit of God within the sight of us, it must be cultivated. As soon as Jesus was baptized in Luke chapter 3, he was baptized and the Spirit of God descended on him and the voice of God in an audible voice began to speak. And he told John, he said, the one that you baptize and the Spirit descends upon like a dove in a bodily form, then you will know that that is the Messiah. The very next time you see Jesus, it's, it says that he was led by the Spirit, he was full of the Spirit, and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And for 40 days of fasting, quoting the Word, meditate on the Word, and in prayer, it says that he comes out of the wilderness. And at that time, it does not say he's led or full of the Spirit. But it says he is full of the power of the Spirit. When you cultivate the Spirit of God with inside of you, with prayer, fasting, and the Word, it takes you to a whole new level. And you begin at that time to begin to move in the purpose and the will that God has called you for. He said, I will put my Spirit upon him. But in the very next phrase, he says this right here. And he will proclaim the truth, justice to all nations. He put his spirit on him. Jesus fasted 40 days. He prayed. He quoted the word. For 40 days, he comes out of the wilderness and he says, The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He takes a spoken word of God and turns it to a manifested word of God. In Isaiah 61, it was spoken. But in Luke chapter 4, he says, This day, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. When the Spirit of God comes upon us, at that time, we are equipped and we are empowered to bring forth the truth of God to all nations. He says, I will put my Spirit upon him. And the very next phrase says, he will proclaim justice. He will proclaim truth to all nations. The word, the word justice in that, it means truth. The living word... The living truth became flesh, became alive. And when he did, he brought this word to fulfillment. He brought this word right here to fulfillment. Who should hear it? The whole earth. 
the nations will hear this truth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Messiah and that he is the chosen servant of God. For they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. When Jesus would release this truth, when he would release this truth, the truth always silenced all critics. It said that amazement gripped the people and they said, what sort of truth is this with such authority that even evil spirits obey him? When the truth of God is released through the Messiah, when the truth, the living word, the word of God is released through the children of God, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the leopards will be cured, and the dead will be brought back to life and the lost will find their way. He is my servant. He is my beloved who pleases me. I have anointed him and put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim truth to all the nations. Amen. This is the way God sees the Messiah. This is the way God reverences him. God saying, I'm not afraid to put my name on the line. I'm not afraid to put my word on the line for him. He's humble, he's obedient, he's selflessness. He's my son. He's my son. And he'll do exactly, exactly what I tell him to do. And he beckons the church tonight to look upon him and to behold him. When I begin begin to grow in the revelation and begin to dig into the well of the Messiah, it's, it's an endless well. But when I begin to jump into the well and got out of all these other little wells and got into the well of the Messiah and the Son of God, it absolutely will transform your life. You want to talk about order, the Messiah, the well of the Messiah will bring order to your life. He says this next. I love this. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not fight He will not shout or raise his voice in public. In other words, what God's saying, he won't embarrass me. He won't act as a politician. Fighting with others and lying. He won't act as a politician. Seeking to be seen or to win a popularity contest. You won't see him praying in the street corners so that everyone will hear his prayers. And his left hand will never know, never let his right hand know what it's doing. Mm, 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 mm. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He is humble, he is meek, he is lowly. You won't find him praying around in flowy robes like the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he never seeks to receive respectful greetings. He never seeks to be seated in the seat of honor at the synagogue. You will never see him seek to be seated at the head, head of the table at the banquets. God says, that's not my son. It's not his style. He won't fight. He won't shout. He won't raise his voice in public. But his character will demand respect from all men. His work on the cross will demand respect. And never need a bow, never tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He won't fight. He won't shout. And he won't raise his voice in public. But you'll always know he's there. He never has to speak a word, but you will know he's there. He's awesome. 
I'm telling you what, the Messiah is awesome. My high priest is awesome. Your Savior is awesome. Your Lord is awesome. He is greatly to be praised. And in these four verses, God says, look upon him. Let us magnify the Lord. He is worthy of our time. He's worthy of our thoughts. He's worthy of our finances. He's worthy of our dreams. He is worthy. The Messiah is worthy. My God. God is in love with him. And he's drawing you to be in love with him. You know why you don't want to worship for hours? Because you're not in love with him. You know why you don't want to come to church on Wednesday nights and Sunday, Sunday mornings? You know why you don't want to give your tithes? Because you're not in love with Him. It's the truth. We might as well, I've had to come to places in my life that where I see that, hey, in this area, in this arena, I'm not in love with Him. But when you fall in love with Him, it means nothing to give up yourself. Jesus Christ was in love with you and he never looked back he never said I'm not going to do it he never gave it a second thought no one made him be the chosen servant he was a son he was a son born into sonship but he chose to be the servant and he died for you because he's in love with you you want this thing to quit being so hard you want this thing to quit being such a strain Is it always going to be a strain against the flesh? You better believe it. But if you fall in love with the Messiah, if you will behold him, if you will look upon him, you will experience his greatness and you will fall in love with the one who died for you. You will fall in love with the one that the Father God endorsed. The second Adam blew it. I mean, the first Adam blew it, but the second Adam, the Son of God, made it right. He restored. He restored. He restored it. Let us fall in love with him. Church, we need to all factor. We need a fear and a reverence to arise within our life. We need a fear and a awe and a reverence to arise in our time. Fear and a awe and a reverence to arise in our church services for an almighty Savior. When we see the Messiah, when we see him, we will no longer go through the motions. It will no longer be four songs. It will no longer be a good sermon. It will no longer be going home the same way we came in. But we will be transformed. We will be miraculously changed. We will see the fulfillment of God's holy word. Are you tired of playing church? Then we must behold the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. We must have the spirit like Joshua and Caleb. They seen the word. They seen the promise of God within the word of God. But the others didn't. There is a culture. There is an American culture that will wander and that will perish in the wilderness because they do not see the Messiah. They see him as Savior and they say, send me to heaven. But they do not see him as Lord. He will not fight and shout and raise his voice in public. But among you it would be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank. And the leader should be like a servant. Christ says who's more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves the table? The one who sits at the table, of course. But not here. Not my kingdom. The greatest among you 
is the one who serves the table. He will not crush the weakest reed. He will not oppress the feeble. (laughs) He will not oppress the poor. He will not use his rule, his authority, and his power. He will not use his lordship to lord it over the people. If you're weak, the weakest reed, he's attracted to. He doesn't walk by and crush it and smash it. He will not flaunt his authority over those under him. But he calls you to join him in his authority and in his power. Glory to God. He will not crush your spirit. He will not break you down. But he will care for you. And he strengthens the weak. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They should mount their wings as eagles. They should run and not grow weary. And they should walk and not faint. Listen to this. Psalms 34 and 18. The Lord is close to the broken heart. And he rescues those. Who are broken spirited. He will not crush the weakest reed. But he'll be patient with you. You hear me? He'll be patient with you. He won't overlook you because of what side of the track you're from. He won't overlook you because of how much money you have. He won't overlook you because of your education. He will not crush the weakest reed. He will not put out the flickering candle. (laughs) He will not hit you while you're down. When that candle and that light is just flickering and you feel like you're barely hanging on by a thread, he will not put out the flickering candle. He came to establish hope to the hopeless and strength to the war out. He will not treat you harshly or unkindly. Listen to this. But he will cherish the flickering candle, ministering the oil of grace and kindling it back into a blazing fire. Hey, he's so powerful and so strong. But when you're weeping, it's right down there with you. When you feel like you're barely hanging on by a thread and your emotions are about to take you for the wildest ride you've ever been on and throwing you ever which way but loose, he will not put out the flickering candle. But he's gentle and he's lowly and he loves to show grace and he loves to show mercy. He loves to show grace and mercy. He is not quick to anger, but he is slow to anger. He's quick to listen to you. Cast all your cares, all your worries upon the Lord because he cares for you. Give your burdens to the Lord and he'll take care of you. He would not allow the godly to stumble and to fall. His eye is upon you. He surrounds you. He instructs you. And he keeps you as the apple of his eye. He's 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 loving. And this is what God says about him. God endorses him. The next phrase, finally, he will cause justice to be victorious. Finally, he will bring justice to all who have been wrong. He will will bring justice to victory. He will bring justice to everyone that has been wronged. I find myself now one of the greatest reasons why I pray for the Lord's second coming. And it may be wrong, I don't know. I pray that he convicts me if it is. 
I don't find myself praying for the greatest reason for him to return in the second coming so I can see his face. But one of the greatest reasons I pray for his second coming is for justice for all those that are done wrong in this world because of sin. But he tells us right here, God says, that justice at the end will be victorious. For all those that have been wronged, justice will be victorious. For all the children that are sexually assaulted, there will be victory and there will be justice for them. For all the women that are raped, and this is real, this is what you should be praying for. This is, what, this is the kind of stuff you should be praying for. Because this is unjust because of sin. But God says, I'm going to get it back. The judgment of God will fall on sin. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. The justice of God will fall on all the innocent people. Teenagers that are sold into sex, sex slavery and traffic it. The justice of God will come. The justice of God will come for the martyrs, for the Christians. That are being killed and being slaughtered, being beaten and burned to death and thrown in prison because of their faith. The justice of God will fall on those that have been wrongly done in court. And those that have been cheated. Finally, hold on church. Because I'm telling you the justice of God is coming. Glory to God. Justice will be served against sin. Justice will be victorious. The judgment of God will fall on sin. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, fairness and justice will be victorious. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. And I have chosen to put my spirit upon him. And at that point, he will proclaim justice. He will proclaim truth to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed and he will not put out the flickering candle. Finally, justice, fairness will be served and be victorious to all who have been done wrong. And his name will be the hope of all the world. Now listen, the American culture has taken the word hope and has diluted it. Hope in our culture means maybe. Hope in our culture is almost a negative word. Are you going to sell a car today? Well, I hope so. There's not a positivity in, in that. But this word hope is a positive word. It literally means to expect. So we can expect. We can expect all this. We can expect the justice of God. We can expect the justice of God through his name to come to all the world. In his name be the hope of all the world. All hope is where? In his name. Where's your hope? In his name. Acts 4 and 12. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Listen to this. The lost are saved. And find their way at the sound of his great name. All condemned feel no shame at the sound 
of his great name. Every fear has no place at the sound of his great name. The enemy has to leave at the sound of his great name. All the weak find their strength at the sound of his great name. Hungry souls receive their grace at the sound of his great name. The fatherless, they find their rest at the sound of his great name. Sick are healed and their dead are raised at the sound of his great name. And his name will be the hope of all the world. God declares my son will restore what the first Adam lost. Because of sin, all hope was lost. But because of the spotless sacrifice of one man, because of the spotless sacrifice of one man, all hope has been restored to the world. The world now has an expectancy that there's a Savior coming. The world now has an expectancy that there is life after death. The world now has an expectancy that there is hope in the storm. There's hope for your marriage. There's hope for your children. And there's hope in His great name. Glory to God. I'm going to leave you with this. The Father is in love with the Son. And He says, Behold Him. If we want to move of God and you fall in love with his son, you can't expect the glory of God to fall if you don't cherish his son and you don't honor his son. You don't honor my wife, then you don't have my favor. If we don't honor his son and we don't love his son, we don't have the favor of God. They're not all one, there's three. Guy asked me about that today and I told him that Christ wasn't schizophrenic on the cross. He was literally talking to somebody. We must honor the Son. We must honor the Messiah. We must honor our high priest. We must behold him. We must look upon him. If you do, it's going to change you. It's going to mess you up. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I believe and I know tonight that you have spoken to us. God, I thank you tonight that your spirit is upon us to teach us. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to move now and begin to cultivate this word with inside of us. I pray for a holy, fiery, passionate love for your son to begin to breathe and begin to move. God, it may only start out as a seed. But I pray that it would grow into a great tree of honor, of reverence, and of fear, and of honor, and of all for the Lamb of God that is worthy. I pray that your spirit would draw us tonight to a holier truth, to a depth of the truth beyond what we have even heard tonight. Transform your people. We want to see a move of God, but we do not see a move of God unless we see the Son. Open our eyes. Let the scales fall from off our eyes. Let our ears be unstopped. God, it's not about the song. It's not even about the sermon. But it's about the word of God, the Messiah. It's about the Messiah in the song. It's about the Messiah, the living son of God. The living word inside the sermon. Let us quit going through the motions and let us grasp a hold of the real son of God. Jesus, you the Christ. 
Transform us and change us and shift everything. Shift everything. Give us complete understanding. And let us grow in this revelation that we may see a move of God. Go with your people. Anoint your people. Empower your people to fulfill your purpose. As Christ fulfilled the purpose when your spirit came upon him, let the spirit baptize us that we may begin to move in the purpose and the will of God for our life, in the dreams and the visions of God for our life, and for this church, rather than moving in our dreams and our visions and our desires and our time. Let us move on your timetable and in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray and ask it. Amen. Thank you, church. You're dismissed. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. You're dismissed.